I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This week on Up to 19. We talk murder trials of the 90s. Part 1. We're officially recording. We're officially recording, Ems. Defo. Defo. Good. That's short for definitely, for those of you that aren't up with the abbreviated lingo. How, How are you? you? Oh, oh, oh first. How are you? Samesies. I'm good. Yeah. I'm very good. I'm dreading my slimming world tomorrow. <sighs> After the wedding. A lot of sins. A lot of sinning. When did you start? <laughs> When did you stop counting? When did I stop eating? I still have a bit of salmon in my mouth. I'm not Do even going to lie. I'm so, oh God. But like, it's just the way. Look, weddings wedding. are right off. You're talking yes. Prosecco, bread basket. Every time I'm hit with the bread basket, I'm like, Judy, don't eat the bread. You're not going to be able to eat your dinner. You have to. And then you think, well, I don't know if this happens to you, but I go to a wedding and obviously drink and eat rings yeah. around myself. And then I throw shapes on the dance floor for about 10 minutes and I convince myself, sure, that's it worked off. I just, I'm such a roly-poly after the dinner. I'm useless to people. Honestly, oh, it's just, it's really but now bad. as well, it's not just the dinner. Negative crack. It's the fish and chips at whatever time. Like, we got fish we and chips. Is this a new thing? Because we got fish and chips at midnight. The last two, yes. The dinner had only been over for two hours. That's the new thing now. I think it's to keep riots down at weddings. Just like, let's keep... Well, I mean, getting a bit of soakage into them. Honestly, <laughs> like sedate is the only word, word for it, really. It's just locked in I syndrome know. all around. No, I don't. I don't want anyone to take those fish and chips away. But I'm just saying, like, they have really upped the food at weddings. Up to ninety. Up to ninety. Up to ninety. With Emma and Julie. Did I did have an unreal chipper last night in I think it's the little chip shop in Belfast and you Ooh. know what you know what I had? Yes. They were proper chipper chips, but then they did chicken couchons, wait for it, in what seemed like a beer batter. Right. So you know like the battery really nice battery you get yes. in your fish. Oh my god, it was just beautiful. And proper mayo. Like it almost seemed like homemade mayo, like just it was kind of runny, lovely texture. Yeah. Oh, just high five it out. It was uh, it was a highlight. So Weight Watchers is tomorrow. Slimming World oh, is slimming tomorrow. World. Yeah. So Sorry. I've already yes. got my speech prepared because they do shame you. You know, right. they go around and they say, "Oh, Linda, you put on you had a bad week. You put two pounds back so on." So what? What's 
what's your tactics? Do you just go in and just like, if I make this speech really long, people are just going to... I'm going to... I had a good week last week mm. and obviously we've gone the other way. We've gone full circle. So I'm just going to go in tomorrow and... I, I mean, I was going to play the mental health card because I oh, do that yeah. quite a bit in my life. So I was That's just going to say I had it? the mental health this week. But I'm just <laughs> going to be honest it. and say, look, I was on holidays. Yeah, but would you not get a crutch, there was bread. Get a crutch, get a crutch or something? I think that always helps. Or like a neck brace or a sling for an arm. You know, it's like <gasps> the, shock, good one. the shock factor. That's yeah, what you're right. Yeah. And then you do the whole thing of went to the doctor just it's tendonitis or it's oh ligaments. that's one nobody ever doubts tendonitis yeah. there's no breakages or anything like that but it's nothing just, that can be disproved yeah 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 but you just tendonitis that kind of thing ligaments i mean and then i could blame the cast i could say i think the cast well, you're not, weighs hang on, a bit back it up now you're not getting a cast i'm not i can't do plaster but no, paris like not, for i mean i'm not night. talking plaster paris but surely i mean surely you you've, have, you've you been to, to my do... neighborhood yeah surely somebody's got a few neck braces floating around i have one in the house a lot of insurance claims yes oh okay that I've explains the holiday coming up yeah yeah i've one here I emma likes to, to stop at roundabouts <laughs> I go out driving on Saturday nights <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning and just like slow down at green lights, just hoping someone will bash into Slam the back. Slam the brakes. Yeah. Big you little, but you're, you're a lovely little squirrel. Did I tell you, I told you about somebody giving out to me saying they'd crash into my car. No. Oh Is this God. the time you accosted the disabled man about parking in a disabled no, that's space? Another, that's a different story. So the other week, right... I'm up at my mom's house and uh, I'm waving goodbye and beeping the horn, you know, making a real show yeah. of her. It embarrasses her, so it's cool. And I just drive out. And now, Varys, I didn't really look in the Elmer and someone came whizzing around the corner. It's a That's a powerful verb. Yeah, so it's very close to the corner. And he beeps. And I thought that'd be it because there was no impact. There was no hit. And he like starts getting so out of the car. So he nearly hit you. Well, I nearly hit him. We nearly, nearly hit, hit him. No, we nearly hit each other. Language <laughs> gave it ca- away. Just okay. in case. <laughs> the insurance company. I never apologised. I never apologised. So when he gets out of the car and I'm like, oh, what's this all about? Because I have the kids in the car. It's my friend's ex. No way. Who she went out with about 10 years ago. And I knew quite well. And is he still living around here? Yeah. This what? housing estate is like Brookside. Nobody leaves. I know. But he doesn't acknowledge that he knows me at all. Oh, hilarious. Right. So then he's doing all this looking at the car stuff and all this. And I'm going through the motions and I'm just standing there going, when is this guy going to acknowledge that he clearly knows who I am? Then I say to him, I go, do you not know who I am? And he's like, he's kind of looking. And I'm like, um, Afric's friend? Do you remember? Okay, I thought we were going to use fake names. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> If I could turn back time, I just love to get you on a court stand, right? He, and I say like it's it's Emma. Do you remember Emma? And he says, so this is like less than ten years ago. Less right. than ten years ago, Judy. He goes, oh yeah, I didn't recognise you. You look completely different. I've seen photos of you, and you haven't changed a bit. I said to him. I was like, oh, that's mad because people tell me I look the exact same. And he goes, oh, well, um, you sound different. Okay, so this guy's a major fool. It's pity the fool situation. 
like and he he would have known where my parents would have lived and all that now so if you're going to bump into your ex's friend in a motor vehicle collision potentially mm. you've got to acknowledge them from the get-go yeah Do you yeah. know what i mean so yeah it was just all really awkward and stuff and but what was the point of getting out of the car and like having a chat if no impact happened? I couldn't believe it. So how did you leave it? Uh, we left it pretty friendly. Um, Maybe he just wanted a chat. Maybe he wanted a chat because he was kind of like, oh, no, I don't think there's any mark. And then he's like, um would you still have her number? She's blocked me. And, all, and I was like, God, it's a bit, a bit weird. <laughs> so we might just ring Africa off your phone very yeah. quickly. <laughs> yeah. I was like, she's married just with two kids. Just to let her know you're she's, okay. She's moved on. Yeah. Um, was he driving a white Beamer? No, he wasn't. I was laughing. He was speeding, I think. That's what my mom said. And of course, well, if you were my mom, did not leave the shoe. You know, when your mom's watching something like this, and I'm like, Mom, we just leave it. And then I looked and she'd gone. But sure, she was upstairs. Of course, behind the curtain. Because then she rings me and she goes, What happened? This couple of days later, what happened with your man? I was like, who? I was like, what? She's like, the car. She had been dying oh, to find out. bless and her. I, I can't believe forgotten. she waited two days. Oh, she was about to self-combust. Oh, she was I'd like, say implode. Completely. She, she hadn't left the hall since. She was trying to find out what the fuck was going on. And dear reader, she's still in the hall. So look, yeah. if you want to help Emma's mom out of the hall. Yes. You could send us maybe a euro a month. And we promise we'll definitely think about sending it on to her. Okay, come here, listen. Will we will we get started? Yeah, let's get ready, ready, let's get ready, ready. Let's Another get one, ready that's going to gonna be episode 36, I think. Yeah. Okay, go for it, babes. Are you, you're going to go first this week. Oh, am I? Yeah, well, I went first last week, so. Okay. We're going a different route this week, aren't okay, we, Em? Okay, yes. So, I'm going to bring you, I'm going to let you know about this little old lady. I don't know if you know her. She was christened named by the media as death house landlady oh so we've all had crap landlords but this one really took the biscuit and her name is dorita fuente okay perfect she was born in 1929 okay we're going back oh yeah and we're gonna bring it right up to the 90s so this is you know fairly long time ago so she was an orphan by the time she was nine. Both her parents had died. Bummer. And uh, she went into an orphanage. Oh. Um, so she was all on her lonesome. And she got married first at the age of 16. It was the first time she got married. Mm-hmm. To a chap called Fred. Oh. Okay. So... She got married to Fred um, and she had a daughter in 1946. So that's when she would have been 16. And 1948. So Mm -hmm. she had a baby at 16, 18, was married. But she actually ended up giving both those daughters one up for adoption and one to family. Um, So a lot of stuff going on. And she actually miscarried later in 1948 okay and very shortly after that fred left her (gasps) fred never leave me (laughs) (laughs) i know 
I never want to hear that sentence coming from your mouth Sorry. ever again. <laughs> I know. I you meet the meet a com- few comics. <laughs> How's Judy getting on? Well, Fred left her. Never again will those words be uttered. With the two kids. Don't leave me. So he left her very shortly after that. And that was when her life into crime kind of began. So she basically started forging a few checks We've all done that. We've all Come done on, it. Come yeah. on, nothing too hairy. Um, but she was caught out. She got married again in 1952. And then in the 60s, she had um, a brothel. Illegal, it always comes caught. back to brothels, Emma. Yeah, so she was in uh, Sacramento in California. So she had a brothel in the 60s. They found out about 90. 90 days in jail for that. So you know, with brothels and things like that, it's usually not a a huge punishment. It's usually like, you know, it's still bad, like going to jail, but it's usually not. You just have to put up with Willie O'D turning up and calling you a lady of the night, and that's your punishment. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So she had the old brothel, and then um, she was, she had to spend another 90 days in prison, actually, shortly after that, because she... I think there was a few petty crimes and things like that. So there was, you know. Small fry. I'm just kind of painting a picture of who Dorita was. So she (laughs) married again in 1966. So this is on to her third husband now. Um, A chap who was 19 years her junior. And... Um, I like her style. Yeah, she's mixing it up completely. So around about this time, she started, she got out of the old brothel game and she became a nurse's aide and she started working in boarding houses and stuff. And she actually acquired um, a boarding house, a three-story boarding house with 16 bedrooms. So basically this boarding house was for people who were kind of, I suppose a lot of them down on and out on benefits, mm. nowhere else to really go. So they would there would have been people there with various different health issues, mm. ranging from you know alcoholism to say um, learning disabilities. You know, broad spectrum kind of people. But a lot of these people were on their own, and maybe the only person who was kind of looking out for them was a social worker. So she thought to herself, this sounds pretty good. So she started basically getting involved with forging a few checks from these guys. Mm-hmm. And she had this system where she would take, the, she, run, she ran a tight ship basically. So she would take their checks, cash them and kind of give them pocket money. Mm-hmm. So in the house itself, the whole there was kind of split of what people thought of her. Some people thought that she was a wagon, mm. like she's robbing my money. She's keep, she was keeping mail from people, keeping money from people, and then other people thought that she was actually quite generous of spirit, quite kind, but generous with the dinners. Okay, so basically, she was an Irish mammy, not giving in your post, yes, controlling your money, but substituting money with dinner yes so she'd give you a big Big portion a big feed but you wouldn't be getting your check anytime soon so maybe there was a few irish heads in there that were happy out with that arrangement Mm. do you know what i mean they were the ones who described her as generous of spirit she was probably turning a blind eye to their drinking and everything as well so they were like grand that'll suit us 
So she was getting on okay in that and nobody was really, there was a few complaints. So basically uh, people started to twig that something was going on. But a lot of things were, a lot of things were kind of happening in the boarding house Mm -hmm. as well. So the police estimated that she was basically pocketing $5,000 per month. Wow. Go her in a way. So... She was quite good at it. So this is where things kind of move a little bit from, um, you know, your regular fraud, mm-hmm. shall we say. Mm-hmm. Just a bit of crack. Up until this point, she was just having a bit of crack, you know. 1982, she was living with a woman called Ruth uh, Munro. Okay. who was 61 years old at the time. And she died and the police were called and everything. And Dorita convinced the police that she was very depressed about her husband dying and that she had committed suicide. Right. And the police were like, yeah, that sounds grand. Doesn't look like it's anything to do with you. Thanks for the info. And then a few weeks later, she she was charged with theft. This was to do with the checks and everything. And she was spent five years in prison. So at this point, all they thought that was going on was the money. Okay. And that was that was purely her motivation through all the stuff that she did. It was money, Loved money, 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 money. Okay. So now she she murdered Ruth. Oh, I I got yeah, there. I was just wasn't oh, yeah. sure. Yeah, but she protested her innocence until she died. She died in two thousand and eleven. Okay. So just so we know where we're at. So while she was in prison. Long um, life. Born oh, in 1929. She's, yes. So she was 82 when she died. And she was only sentenced. It took me longer to get there, but okay. Yeah, and yeah. she was only sentenced in December 1993. So that's why I'm talking about her now. So when she's in prison, she started, um, she got herself an old pen pal. Oh, Everson Gilmouth. So he was 77 and they started writing to each other. So when she was released in, she was released in 1985. Everson was there waiting for her in his Ford pickup truck. The relationship started to blossom. They were already like talking about wedding plans, all this. Like she'd been through a good few husbands at this stage. Bit of a black widow. Good few husbands at this stage. So... Basically, in the boarding house that she was in, she had an apartment at the top. So she was living there. She was renting this apartment. And Everson came to live with her. And she employed um, a handyman to help her out with a few bits and bobs in the apartment. Ismail Ferez, okay, he came to the house. She wanted him to do some wood Mm panelling. So then she says, she's doing the wood panelling, probably having a break for a cup of tea. She sounds like the type of woman, she probably would have been real good to the handyman, like sandwiches, rolls, yeah. biscuits. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. she would have had it all laid out. Yeah. Right. The kind of people, Shane, my fella, painter, decorator, loves. He loves yeah. those old ones that give you the big feed. And yeah, I start yeah, getting yeah. a bit jealous. Yeah. She baked it herself, lemon drizzle tart. I'm like, you want well, to go live with that whore? Go live with that whore. The fact that, yeah, the fact. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I know, but the fact that she did find one of their nighties <laughs> in his weekend bag, like I think, to be fair, and her pension book, I I don't know why you didn't you ask more questions. Tell she was a looker back in the day. 
but it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right, Emma. So I like telling him about it. doesn't matter even if you're the French president. It doesn't make it right. Not on my watch. So I like kind of making a point about this story. So he's doing the little bit of wood panelling and she's like, um, you know, getting the tea on. How do you like your tea, grand, whatever, having a bit of a laugh and, you know, you're doing mighty work there and all that kind of crack. And she says, oh, you wouldn't make me an old box, would you? About six by two. I just have some stuff I want to put into storage. You know, would that be all right with you? This is um, Dorita. And he's like, yeah, not a bother. So he whacks together this box and the box is packed up and he's going to drop her off to uh, put this thing into storage. Um, the hus- or the husband-to-be, I suppose, whatever, boyfriend, Everson, isn't around at that time. Mm. And so she pays him for his work. She pays him, and I think it's about eight or $900 cash, but she also gives him a Ford pickup trucks, which she says is her boyfriend's. He's in a- L.A. at the moment, but he doesn't need it, so that's part of his payment. It's a lot of money for a box, isn't it, really? So they go I don't know off. why we're believing Ishmael. We go, they go off in the car and she's, she asks him to pull over and she says, you know what, we won't actually bring this to the storage. We'll just throw it in the river here. It's uh, it's just full of rubbish. So that's obviously Everson's body. Handyman doesn't know this at the time. No, I got there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> His body's discovered like three years later, but it was never actually... I think, yeah, it was unidentified for three years. They didn't know who it was or anything like that. Because obviously, I've watched a few of these things. I think, you know, it can be hard to get DNA off bodies Mm. when they've been in the water a long time and stuff, isn't it? Apparently, the water is the worst. Yeah. Yeah. So, she was basically up to no good. So, basically, what happened was, and the authorities, you know, she... She'd been in jail a few times, but she was still running this boarding house and whatever. And there was kind of rumors in the area or whatever. And a few social workers were kind of a little bit concerned about what was going on. And you see, there was people going missing, but because they wouldn't have had family and friends kind of... They were vulnerable on their own, wouldn't have been missed. Yeah. So then in 1988, basically, she had this personal handyman who I think they describe as... um, chief so actually now there's another there's a guy on youtube who is very interesting his name is i'll just find him here because i want to give him credit stone or van houten how could i forget his name <laughs> um he has a youtube account and it's a uh, ranch worker now he's basically really interested in charles manson but he has a video on his youtube channel where he goes to this house mm. so the house is still Sounds like a fun guy yeah well, he's Boy, basically I'd love in his, to see his Tinder bio, well, Charles his, Manson. Judy, in his bio for his YouTube channel, he just basically says, "Look, put down the the Bible and smoke a joint." Okay, so he's chill. He's, he's chill. chill. Yeah, he's got. It's not that he doesn't want to work. People just won't <laughs> give him jobs. <laughs> We've all heard that one before. Oh, oh, Julie. So he bring he does this little video where he's at the house. Mm. So he he was saying that this guy's name was um, Alberto Montoya. So this was a guy who was living in the boarding house, and he was her helper. He was helping her bury bodies, and he believes that Alberto was the seventh body, because obviously after he'd helped her bury all these bodies, she's like, I better get rid of him. So he shows a video of the house. The house is still there. Please tell me nobody's living in it. They do tours uh, in the house now. 
So in the area of Sacramento, it, there seems to be like everyone's okay about it. You know the way in lots of other houses where there's been tragic things happen and mm. stuff like that. They just, the house is demolished. It's gotten rid of or whatever. Mm. People are quite okay with this. There's On the outside of the house, there's a couple of signs. One of them reads, do not park across the driveway. The ghosts like to get out to terrorize the neighborhood. So they're kind of making a bit of a joke yeah. out of it. And then there's another there's another plaque that says it was that awful, awful woman that did it. Um, don't blame me, the house. So they're kind of creating this thing that the house is haunted and they do tours. And it's all run by the city of Sacramento. Like it's, you know, it's a legit tour tourist that, attraction yeah, that the city are running. So she basically, she died in 2011 and they started setting up, the, the tour was up and running and going in 2013. So they were basically just waiting for, for her to bite Teresa the dust. to die. So anyway, Alberto, when, when he went missing, that was what got everything working because his social worker had been keeping an eye on him. And somebody had noticed that pavement in the garden had been tampered with you know there was something going on and this was like right this wasn't you know like in other cases where it's in the back garden it's mm. all sealed off this was in the front garden like it was just beside the path where all these bodies were buried so alberto poor alberto but he got the whole thing kind of kicked off mm. but the police at the very start when they visited the house and, you know, they're finding remains. They didn't actually suspect Dorita at the start at all. Well, because she was probably doing the little old lady thing. Exactly. Do you want some homemade lemon drizzle? Yeah. And she's like, she goes off to the shop, probably making out like, oh, Jesus, I haven't got enough in for all these people. Legs it. Runs <sighs> off to L.A. So they eventually, they catch up with her. But she it was takes on the run. Yeah, she, well, she was only in L- L.A. It wasn't that far Why away. Why wouldn't she go she, to another state even? I don't know. But even when she went to L.A., she was trying to chat up some old lad in a bar and mm. saying to him, we should move in together. <laughs> and like she, she was straight like, back on her okay, yeah. And then that actually helped them catch her because the guy, they had the FBI on the case and the guy had seen her picture on the news or something. So he was like, and he was on a news like I was, I was lucky to get away. I was lucky to get away. It's like, you would have said yes if you hadn't recognised her from 100%, the news 100%, yeah. Because she's obviously very manipulative, very persuasive, and she's just probably shoving brownies under your nose. Like, yeah. Want to come live with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, at least he got out of it. Okay, but went to trial in 1992. So obviously this was a massive trial. You know, and she just looks like this little old granny. White hair, the big, the big glasses, like mm. the massive jam jar glasses didn't wasn't sentenced until December 1993 so the trial went on for a year and it took the jury months to decide what yeah they, what was there to decide they were deadlocked loads of times so I think in the end she was actually only convicted of um three of the murders in total but how do they explain away the others just coincidence yeah, and I suppose there was lots of people there who kind of, you know, she could have been able to say suicide or whatever, or like, she, but she always, she always claimed that she was innocent right up to the end. She said the money, yeah, I did the money. She seemed to be quite proud of the money, like it, w- it was all about the cash for her. But um, 
she she never admitted to it. And I suppose from a sentencing point of view, whether you're found guilty of three murders in the States or whether you're found guilty of seven, it makes no odds. Like you're still going to serve the same time. Yeah. And obviously in... You're not getting yeah, out. And in that boarding house as well, there's obviously other people that they can't, they can't account for. You know, other people that... So it could, it, like, could potentially be more. But in Sacramento you like it's very uh, people will talk about it to you if you walk into a bar and they'll tell you what they but know it's just the story that they make such a joke out of it like you know that it's just commercial commercialization gone mad well it just seems to be in this particular case because then uh stoner van Houten was saying that like in the charles manson <laughs> i cannot believe we're using him as a reference point you seem to know what he was talking about in the charles manson case where all the, the house and all the murders happened that house is now gone well, I, 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 I'm glad. But, but I'm just saying her house isn't gone. It looks, it, her house looks brilliant. See, I suppose it's interesting how people, there are different hierarchies for murders and the grotesque. So people would view Manson as a monster, but almost maybe kind of nearly dismiss her as kind of an old woman just having a Oh yeah, a and any, any of the video footage, she just seems quite normal. You know, she's just like, what do you, you know, I took the money, but like all of this other stuff. So what motivated me. it, I wonder? Was it a power thing? It was purely just the money. So she'd kill them, but obviously no one would know that they were dead and she would just keep... Um, the moolah. Cashing their checks. So you think that was the singular motive? Yeah, money. Okay. I think obviously she obviously enjoyed it to a certain extent mm. as well. But I'm just she like basically <laughs> I've looked into a good bit and she is what doctors would clinically describe as mad bitch. Mad bitch. Okay, I thought you were going to go down the narcissist <laughs> route, but hashtag mad bitch. No, that really is a medical bitch. term, and don't you dare doubt us. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, she's a fucking mad bitch. So that's it. That was a deadly one, Ems. Thank you so much. Did you enjoy I'm that? Really enjoying our well, true crime I episode. To, I have to leave out a lot of information because with true crime, there is so much information, isn't there? Well, there is. I'm going to do one now. I want to and give people a flavour. What's, yeah, what's your flavour? Yeah, no flavor. more than that. Ooh. This one, because um, this is one now that I've wanted to do for a couple of weeks. Yes. But Again, I'm not. I'm not going to be too heavy with the info. It's just, yes. as you say, a bit of a flavour, bit, bit of, a, bit of a taste test. So, Ems, I'm going to take you back to the 20th of August, 1989. Beverly Hills 911 gets a call. It's Lyle Menendez screaming, "Someone has killed my parents." Okay, that's serious. So basically, Lyle, Lyle Menendez is the eldest brother in the Menendez family. His father is Jose Menendez. He's a Cuban Im- immigrant who did very, very well for himself. Um, okay. Kind of the epitome of the American dream, really. He ended up being a Hollywood, major Hollywood executive. His company, they were actually behind Ninja Turtles and those videos and all that kind of crap. I'm sure, like, that's huge money, isn't Hashtag it? Hashtag made, yeah. His missus, so the mother in the family, the matriarch, was Kitty. So Kitty was like, again, just the quintessential like all American wife blondie hair all the rest I thought when you said Kitty you were going to say she was Irish I just I know I hear Kitty I'm like Kitty you think Irish Kitty 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 so Kitty Kitty and uh, Jose were the parents Lyle was the eldest brother and his little brother who was also present in the house at the time that he made the 911 call was a young man called Eric so at the time that this call was put in from an outside perspective it seemed like the Menendez family were 
the perfect family. Yes. Lyle had been accepted to Princeton. Um, they, uh, Eric uh, was hoping to go to UCLA. They were mad into tennis, into yachting. Um, they were they had very active social lives. They were outgoing. Very good, very good looking brothers, have to say. Good looking guys. Uh-huh. And so from an outside perspective, it all looks good. So they put in the call. Yes. They've said somebody has killed our parents and outwardly it all looks good. But as we've already touched upon other podcasts, scratch the surface, very different story. Mm. So Lyle had actually been expelled from Princeton because of plagiarism. Eric had been involved in a few burglaries around the neighborhood, which I tried to get more information on the burglaries. Major red flag, I think, somebody coming from his socioeconomic background who is All not motivated by money. Yes. I'm not excusing people coming from, like, you know, different backgrounds, it, bur- you know, robbing houses, etc. But, like, I'm sorry if it's motivated by money. Like, this was a kid just being a brat. Yeah, I mean... To me, it's a different beast. Burn a few bins. Light a few bonfires. Robbing your neighbours. Come on. Do a knick-knack or something. You know what I mean? Do a knick-knack. Like, just do something. But, I mean, robbing is a good... Like, seriously, burglarizing, really? Anyway, so things were not rosy in the Menendez Mm. Garden. So, uh, anyway, the police arrive following the 911 call. Right. And what the what a couple of the police officers who respond who initially responded to the crime. First of all, the lead police officer at the time was like, "It didn't happen." In Beverly Hills, we had two murders a week, which actually upsets me. Two a week. Oh yeah, two. Sorry, two a year. They'd have two a year. Oh, two a year. It, okay. it, it upset. It like it has to upset you when you think of what's going on down the road. Like you know, in South LA or in Compton, when you think of the murder right there at the time, I'm sure it was a lot more than two a yes, year. Yes, yes. He said just murders didn't happen, so they had no idea what to expect. Obviously, going out to this amazing mansion, yes. amazing mansion. They go in the door and they said the first thing that struck them and it's shown in the footage at the the there's well there's a few documentaries but Core TV covered the case very heavily uh the first trial but uh, that what they was really struck them was the silence. So you right. go into a murder scene and you're expecting a lot of tears, a lot of hysterics, but they went in and they said it was just deathly silence. So they found Lyle and Eric crying. They said they were very, very upset. I think you kind of expect that. So the cops are there. They're questioning them. The boys say, uh, and by the way, Lyle is 20th time. Eric is 18. So right. they say, look, we went to the movies. Went to the movies. We came back and we found this. So... The police immediately presumed like a mob scenario. So they thought it was right. gang related, specifically mob related, yeah. mafia related, probably yeah. like extortion, robbery, something along those lines. Okay. So they said that because the boys, the guys were upset, they didn't test them for gun residue. Right. They didn't have a, a peek around for murder weapons or anything suspicious whatsoever. So they just obviously offered their condolences, left them on their merry way. These lads were trained in Tullamore, were they? Or what was uh, yeah, Templemore even. Oh, yeah. Templemore! Well, what did I say? Tullamore. <laughs> Corrections corner strikes again. Anyway, sorry, we won't talk sorry. about Ballina. That got edited out, thank God. Um, <laughs> oh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, so Tullamore. now the immediate. So immediately, obviously, people presumed this is a terrible tragedy that has mm. befallen these brothers. But the immediate aftermath, they were acting very strangely. Four days after their parents had been brutally murdered, um, Lyle went off and purchased a Rolex. 
Um, they yeah, they proceeded to buy a mad array of items in the months that followed the murders. So uh, Lyle bought a Porsche. He bought a restaurant in New Jersey. What? Just impulse buy. Um, Eric was mad for the tenants, so he enlisted the help of a pro tennis coach to finally give his career the boost that it needed. They also, this is kind of cute, they bought matching condos, um, adjoining condos, I should say, so they could live close enough but still have their separate space. Um, so obviously this behaviour <sighs> was like very suspicious. Yeah. Very ostentatious, very bling bling. Not really what you'd expect from mourning uh, brothers. So then what happened, and this is very interesting. So uh, Ozeal this guy called Ozeal, who was their psychologist. He was right. their therapist, because obviously, you know, everyone in Beverly Hills is a therapist. In October, in October, his partner, his girlfriend, claimed that she overheard a conversation that in- that incriminated Lyle. She heard him say, discuss how he had murdered his parents. So this now, the police actually, a lot of people were suspicious of their behaviour after, the, after, okay. the, after the deaths. But this kind of, okay, sprung them into action. And they actually managed to get a search warrant for the house. Okay. And long story short, March rolls round and they're on trial for murder. Now, the murder itself, not to get too graphic, but very, like, there was obviously no question. Now, they initially pleaded not guilty. But we're talking the murder weapons were in their cars. Okay, the murder weapons were in their cars. They their bloodied clothes. They had removed their bloody clothes, but the bloody clothes were found. So we're talking not exactly, you know, we're not, we're talking not exactly... I'm trying to think of the word America's most intelligent criminals. Oh, like it's master, just all not criminal masterminds. Like, they're not criminal masterminds. So, um, basically, they uh, no, actually, sorry, the but God, but that would that like that would lead you to believe <clears throat> that if you know that length of time after the murders that they were able to find so much evidence and it was so easy to find. It kind of makes me think like. Like, do they even think about it that much after it happened? Like, they just seemed well, to... Well, basically what happened was they initially pleaded not guilty. Then right. it became very evident, look, they definitely killed them. So then it was a question of not who killed their parents, because it was blatantly obvious that they had killed their parents. There was no right. denying that. There was just way too much evidence pointing that way. Um... There was, so there was no denying that. For example, they had been shot. The parents were shot with two sh- with shotguns. So the lads had bought 12 shots fired. The dad had been fired, had been shot. The The parents had been sitting in the library TV room watching TV. Okay. Dad was shot point blank range in the back of the head. The mother then was shot also. Tried Sorry, she wasn't shot initially. Woke up to the father, the husband being shot. Tried to run away. Was shot in the leg. So it was very brutal. Then she slipped, fell um, on her own blood and then was shot again. And uh, we're talking in point blank range in the face. So we're talking the most brutal. 12 shots altogether were fired. So there was no... When they say point blank, that's like... We're talking... Right up in your face or like... Extreme, extremely close proximity. I I just wanted to make sure that that's what it was. 
So it kind of materialized very quickly. Now, obviously, there was media interest straight away in these brothers because they were being charged with their parents' murder. They were extremely good looking. They were Beverly Hills rich kids. Of course. And it had all the, the elements. The details were just out there of the murder itself. So right. that was basically the lowdown. Really, really brutal. Like if you saw the photos, really brutal crime. And it became very clear very quickly that, uh, okay, we've got bloody clothes and all the rest. The lads had bought shotguns. So they were on record for buying shotguns a week previous to the murder. Claimed they'd gone in for just any binny handguns. And we're told, no, we, we ha- it's a 15-day waiting list. So they said, okay, look, we'll go for the shotgun. It later materialized that this store didn't even sell handguns. So that was all bullshit. Um, but anyway, so went on trial. The trial was covered by Court TV. Uh, it was called at the time the trial of the century. So right. initially, this was the first trial was previous to O.J. Simpson. So this was the one that really garnered a lot of interest. Now, their defense... They could not deny that they killed their parents. Right. Their defense, do you want to take a guess? It's going to be something stupid, like that their parents were annoying them or something. Well, it was that their parents were abusive, specifically that their father had been emotionally, physically and sexually abusive. So this was their defense. Right. This is what they said, that this had been going on for years, etc., etc. Um, And they said that that week... That they were in fear of their lives. So they felt that their parents were going to kill them. Now, what might kind of cast out on that te- theory uh, There's is, a very touchy tone now with your voice. No, I'm not saying... No, I will say, sorry, before I go there, I will say, and I do think this is very telling, the dad did seem like a bit of a prick in the sense that the two aunties, so his two sisters were like, look, he was horrible to the kids. Like, he oh, put okay. a lot of pressure on them. He's very intimidating. My way or the highway. Like, had ridiculously high standards for them. Nice. Like, a perfectionist in the extreme and all the rest. So, they, I think, you know, his sisters were like, look. But, you know. Okay, so they kind of backed he was up hard work. that element of the they story. Were, they, so they were, um, they were testifying on behalf of the, de- the defence. Right. Which is very telling. But... What had happened in the interim was Lyle had a fiance, and when they were initially arrested for the murders, okay. by the way, they confessed to the murders very, very quickly when they were brought in in March. They confessed virtually straight away, dripping in Rolexes, and um, bling bling. Like yeah, they had the what you call the gold, the gold tooth thing. What's that that they get the grill? They grill, had the yeah. grill, all that. I took so when they were initially year. arrested, now so I was watching this. Now the testimony. Look, nobody can say either way. Like, certainly the testimony that they gave was mm. so harrowing and so upsetting to watch. I'm not going to go into the details here because why would we do that to ourselves? But, like, you would think, okay, this guy is either an Oscar-winning... This is either an Oscar-winning performance or he's telling the truth when he's talking about the abuse that he suffered okay. on the hands of his dad. But then, the fiancé, who was the former fiancé at this stage, she'd broken up with him by the right. time the trial rolled around. She said, well, when he was initially arrested... she kept the ring, though. Oh, always keep the ring. Oh, if I Judge say. Judy thought, taught me one thing. You keep the ring. Yeah. It, you keep the ring. But I will. So basically, the, the fiance said that when he was initially arrested, that Lyle. Now, to me, this kind of casts a very different oh, shadow on, on it all. He said to her, listen, you're going to have to do me a favor. You're going to have to go to the library because remember, this is archives. This is, you know, we're talking Our old area. school, early 90s. Yes. You're going to have to go to the library. Okay, I want you to look up these cases. And all the cases were cases where uh, uh, kids 
had killed their parents and as part of their defense had said that they'd been sexually abused by their parents. So he was like, you need to go and look up. And he had the case numbers. He was like, you need to go and look it up. The psychologist said, because actually that was one of the things that was very interesting. It took a long time for the trial to actually basically get up and running because the main thing, of course, the main really, I suppose, uh, the catalyst in it all had been that the psychologist had said, look, he told me, well, his partner overheard. And then he said, look, I was told Mm. that they had killed their parents. Eric, who was the little brother, he was very much second fiddle. Eric had admitted this to the psychologist. He said, we did it. There was had never been any reference to sexual abuse, right. none whatsoever. And his reasoning was, we did it, we had to, we just had to do it. So there was no reference to abuse right. at that point. No, am I saying they definitely weren't abused? No, but just a couple of things there that maybe kind of would. I feel for that fiance though, because you know, good that she obviously broke off the engagement and whatever. But it must have been tough for her getting back out in the game. Like, oh, so, like, what was your longest relationship? Oh, like, I was engaged before. Like, oh, what happened? Yeah. Oh, he murdered his parents, right? You know yeah. what I mean? Well, you know, it's like when you say my ex is such was such a dick. And you're like, oh, come on. And then you're like, no, like, he, he shot his mother in the face. Oh, fair enough. You know what I mean? It's that, it's next level dickiness. Isn't I mean, it really? and you'd have to bring it up early enough. Like, you'd have to bring it up before the third date, really. But you can't bring it up in the cinema. It's but like, then you, know. you don't want to be talking about the ex too much. This is it. What, what would you think about the fact that he went off? Is it, is it sus or was he just trying to prepare a really good defence? Am I being cynical? The fact that he asked the fiancé to go off and look up these cases. Would you be cynical about that or no? Maybe I'm reading it all wrong. <laughs> well, I think, obviously, these two fellas are terrible human beings. But... If I, say if I had been charged with something that I didn't do, you know, like say I'd been charged with murdering somebody, even if I didn't do it, like there'd be the part of shock and disbelief and whatever. But then like once you'd start getting your court date, I'd be like, I need to find out as much info about this as possible. Mm. So... I can I can see yeah no it doesn't it doesn't sound great but I could see how you could I kind know, of defend yourself. I know I'm only thinking when I say whether it out loud. Guilt, whether you're guilty or not, if you are gonna go on trial for something, for anything, you're going to do your research into yeah. it. But then I suppose the kind of research he was doing. Well, this you know? I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate now because, in terms of the sexual abuse theory, a cousin who testified on the stand, Auntie Kano. He said that when they were about 13, that um, Eric had mentioned this to him. Right, okay. But there was no, now, there was kind of then, there was kind of, I suppose, again, doubt doubt cast on that testimony because it seemed to fit too much with the wording, the specific wording in the in the case itself, so the so the prosecution kind of very, well, not even a payout, but they they were a bit kind of dismissive of it. I mean, but obviously that's a totally different beast. If he had mentioned this to uh, his, if he had mentioned this to his cousin who was thirteen, so he knows. But the prosecution were then like saying, obviously, you know, the only way in California law you can actually win a murder trial. Mm. If you've been tried, if you if you've de- you've committed the crime, right. the only way you can actually win the mur- murder trial on the basis of self defense is if you honestly believe that your life is in immediate danger. 
immediate and present danger. And one of the things they did talk about a lot was they did ask Lyle specifically a lot in the stand. If all this stuff was going on, why didn't you leave the house? Like you were a 20 year old man, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. I would think, I mean, I don't think things are necessarily that straightforward either in those kind of yes. domestic situations. That was one of the things they kept harping on about. But I mean, then I thought myself, I was like, I don't necessarily think it's straightforward either. Because the, the dad, certainly like the tennis coach said he was the most horrible parent he's ever encountered. That he was, you know, quite manipulative, all the rest. I, you know, so again, he, that he was quite a horrible man. That's what right. the tennis coach, tennis coach said. Um, so basically, first tr- first trial. What was interesting was you had two juries, one for each brother. Eric's jury comes back first after twenty days, so nearly three weeks, and said we're at deadlock. We can't come to unanimous decision. Right. Uh, Lyle's jury comes back twenty five days uh, after um, after the event, and they say, look, we can't come to decision either. So both juries are deadlocked. Second trial, oh, no. they couldn't come to a verdict. Uh, uh, verdict. Lyle's um, defence lawyer, who had mad blonde curly hair, proved to be quite a character. It was very dramatic, very theatrical and all the rest. Oh. She was overjoyed. Sorry, Eric's defence lawyer. Overjoyed. Like if you saw the press conference she gave the media after, Basie turned around and said, Eric will never be convicted of this crime. Like real Balshi was just like totally like, I'm so happy with my success. I'm so happy with my win. But obviously he was going to try it again because it was a yes. hung jury. So it seemed very preemptive to be talking like that and so openly to the media. But she just she just thought, here we go. This is the start of it now of this never like yeah. happening. Second trial, long story short, the judge takes a very different approach. Doesn't mm. allow a camera in the courtroom. So gets rid of that whole like Hollywood trial of the century feel. Right. And does not really allow any evidence whatsoever in to support the abuse theory. So quite an extreme decision. Ooh, okay. So basically the defence were left with no defence because that was their defence. Right, okay. Of so course, yeah. dismissed it all. Both found guilty of murder, unsurprisingly, considering that the, he dismissed the notion that they would enter the abuse as kind of, you know, part of the defence. Yeah. Uh, sentence, both sentenced to life without parole. Uh, as would be the way with, um, with joint defendants, they were... Uh, sent to maximum security prison, but they were not sent to the same prison. So they were separated at that point. And 1995, they gave a joint interview to Good Morning America, Barbara oh, Walters. Yeah, I don't understand this, how they, how, well, they do it all over the world, but how this whole thing of interviewing it's prisoners and stuff. mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I suppose it's probably, I don't know, meant to be part of the rehabilitation or... Yeah, I mean, Public I'm sure. I'm sure, but a moolah as well is well, passed, is yes. passed over to the the incarceration. Well, services. I think a lot of. Am I right in saying that a lot of prisons in America are commercialized? Yeah, yeah. So there's probably a bit of that as well. But they gave a joint interview in 1995, and they spoke about which they kept harping on about this. Basically, they said they're they still maintain to this day that they acted out of fear. They didn't think it true. They uh, genuinely thought they were in real immediate danger, even though like the parents were sitting down on the couch watching TV. They were like, no, we thought we were going to die. We were going to die that night. They claimed to just have shot in panic. Um, 12 shots fired. They kept going on about the fact that none of the neighbours called the cops. They said they, they were adamant that they sat down and waited for the cops to arrive and nobody came because they just presumed 
that the neighbours were going to be like, what the hell, nobody fires shots in this neighbourhood and that they were going to come organically. So then they claimed that one when that didn't happen, so they were kind of blaming the neighbours. They were like, I can't believe they didn't put the call through. And so many of them were like, yeah, we heard shots, but we just thought they were like firecrackers or something. Yeah, of course. And so then they claimed, look, when that didn't happen, we had to come up with a plan. So that's when we went to the movies. They went to the movies, kept their movie tickets. Um, so they so had the stubs. They had the alibi to say we were at the movies, got rid of their bloodied clothes, hadn't planned any of this. One thing actually which really did not help them at all in the murder in the murder trial was the fact that Lyle had to go and reload the gun. So more ammunition was in another room. So he actually had to go and reload the shotgun. Oh so we're talking God. like... It was pretty, like, pretty grim, to be honest. And anyway, long story short, they still maintain their innocence. Uh, they did have a few girlfriends and wives in prison, though. 1996. Oh, yeah. uh, no, what was the first? Oh, yeah. 96. Um, Lyle married Anna Erickson, who was a former model. Um, a f- this is what he's in prison. Yeah, former model. No conjugal visits allowed in California, by the way. So this is a proper pen pal relationship. Right. And 2003, she divorced him after he she discovered that he'd been cheating on her by writing to other women. Mm-hmm. 2005, he wasn't oh, single for long. He, is this for real? Yeah, he married Rebecca Sneed. 1997 then, um, Eric got married in a telephone ceremony. Uh, so you got Terry at Folsom. As in Johnny Cash song, False, and that's where he was imprisoned for all those years. And in 2005, uh, oh yeah, sorry. So 1997 got married in a in a, a telephone ceremony. 2005, she wrote a book about her life uh, being married to Eric Menendez. She has well, see, a this daughter. What I was going to say, is this what it's all about? Is it about getting well, the book? Getting she, a few letters, she, putting them in the book? Well, because I did read up on this one and she does actually travel. She does actually, tra- Tammy's her name, and she travels every week. She does 240 kilometres uh, journey there and back, I think, which is what, 480 kilometres, to visit him every week. And her daughter calls Eric her earth dad. Make of that what you will. Um, and so it's just a whole load of headbangers all getting in touch pretty and much. hanging out. And then April 4th, 2018, this is why I thought it'd be a good one to do this year. They were reunited and they are now in the same uh, prison. Prison. Same housing unit. Oh, I think they I can visit this. whenever they can visit each other whenever they want. So they've been reunited, as you would expect, when they first saw each other after twenty-two years of not having seen each other. Nearly twenty-three. Of course, they bawled their eyes out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you do just think, what was it all about? I definitely think, yeah, there was some weird shit going on. I don't like. No way do I think, like you know, it was all happy families. Yeah. But the crime itself was so extreme. Terrible. Like, I, it was just, even the photos, oh, gross. I mean, so, and you just think, God, like, they've been in prison, what, 26 years now? Yeah. And they're never, get, they are never getting no, out. the pen pals. I mean, that fellow I was writing to him, Mount Joy, that was only drug charges. Like, that's completely And he different. had the phone that he could text you on. Completely Do you know what I different. mean? Like, it was totally different. Those women just like get a grip, desperate. <laughs> no, but yeah, it's pretty horrific. But 
I mean, if those women want to write letters and get married, I mean, if people are finding happiness. Uh, I was shut <laughs> up. It doesn't suit you. Okay, guys, so Psych. I'm sure we got a million things Ziff. wrong. Do you like us discussing true crime, actually? Let us know, because I've been mad to do a true crime. Yeah. Oh, you've been absolutely... Gagging for gagging. true crime. Absolutely gagging for in true crime. In an almost suspicious way. Uh, look, before you say it, I wasn't in Beverly Hills in 1989. I was nowhere. I was nowhere there. Nowhere near the crime scene. Okay. When you, what age would you have been? Yes, I've written, You would have been I've, eight, 1989. I've written a couple of letters, but that is it. Okay, that isn't how far one my page, involvement goes page. with uh, with um, with the case. So, guys, if you want us to discuss true crime, or if you do, like listener, if you never want us to discuss true crime again, please let us know on our Twitter, Insta. Tinder Bumble. Yes. And up to 90 podcasts. And next week, um, we're going to be talking about crimping. <laughs> Are we? No. No, guys. Look, serial killers to crimping. We're, actually, do you know what we're doing next week? Is it, well, this week I'm doing the dates. Oh, yeah. Next week we're doing a great one. We're, do, we're having a crossover with Gordon Rochford. Ooh. And we're talking dial-up internet. Yes. Yeah. And we'll be, we might guys. bring in a bit, because Gordo is mad for the crimping. So we might bring yes. in a bit of crimping as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so Gordon's great of those conspiracy guys. So we're going to be doing that. So again, just that's, branching out into different topics. That's, that's next week or the week after. I'm bad at chronology, but it's sometime in the near future, got kids. Yeah. So stay with us. Right. Love you lot. Stay safe out there. Use protection. Bye. Talk to you next week, guys. Bye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.